we're starting a new series today. Um, I might just... Does that work for you? You can all still see. Um, This week, in the Guardian newspaper, I'm not a typical Guardian reader, whatever that means. This week in the Guardian, there was a very interesting article about Christianity... Um, a lady, the, the article was written by a man, but in the article he quoted a lady called Linda Woodhead, who's quite a well-known professor of sociology. And her field of expertise is to study, or what she's been studying recently anyway, is um, young people's attitudes towards religion in our modern uh, culture, not just Christianity. I think she studies all, all different religions and in in the article in the Guardian the man who was writing uh, he finished with with this comment one of her most striking findings is that although most under 30 say that they are of no religion relatively few say that they are atheist there are plenty out there who crave something that they can be that they can relate to and be nourished by. I don't think the guy who wrote the article was a Christian particularly, but I thought that was a fascinating thing to read. Um, in other words, what, what the writer of the article is saying, that younger people, if, if you're under 30, this, this is what Linda Woodhead was researching, younger people are saying two things at the same time. I don't want religion but I'm not an atheist. Two things at the same time. In other words, younger people are looking for something. Meaning, purpose, love, but they believe that religion is totally irrelevant and useless in that pursuit. If you're under 30, apparently, you'll you'll tell me afterwards if, if this is right or wrong, If you're under 30, apparently what matters for you is finding answers that you can relate to which will provide some kind of nourishment that you can feed upon and live by. Now, I I think this this sentiment has to be true when we think about Christmas, doesn't it? Christmas is so familiar to us. Um, I I don't know what kind of a person you are. You might be really excited about Christmas. You might be one of those people who likes to wear a bar humbug t-shirt. But whatever your attitude towards Christmas is, it's so familiar, isn't it? It's all so religious. For many people, it just washes over us. Christmas is just kind of there as a sort of cultural, religious relic. This afternoon, we're beginning a brief Christmas series for four weeks. culminating in our carols in the barn in Whiston uh, on the 20th of December. And I've entitled this series The Promised King. And it, and it strikes me, as I entitled the series The Promised King, that a lot of our sermon series seem to have the word king in them. We seem to talk a lot about Jesus being the king. And that's not really an accident. Last week, Peter Hughes came, uh, the vicar of St Albans Church in Wickersley, and he actually his talk at Cafe Church last week was about Jesus Christ being the King. That was an accident. But there is a design in in our sermon series. But seeing Jesus Christ as a real King 
is a good example of what I mean. The Christ, this Christmas time, so many Christians and non-Christians will sing or listen to carols that talk about Jesus as King. We've sung a famous one today. Heart the herald, angels sing. Glory to the newborn King. It kind of trips off our tongue because we're so familiar with it. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. When we sing, O come, O ye faithful, there's a line in there, come and behold him, born the King of angels. It's like we sing these songs almost without thinking, and we're proclaiming Christians and non-Christians all over the country. We're proclaiming Jesus King. How do we do that without it affecting our lives? An American pastor called Greg Gilbert uh, gives this answer. Let me read to you a quote. I think the reason we are able to sing songs like this is because we are able as human beings to safely tuck those declarations of Jesus' kingship into a little harmless box. The idea of Jesus' kingship to a lot of us is merely a kind of religious symbol. It's just something that is out there. Jesus, if he is a king at all, is a religious king at best. It's an image we talk about in church. In other words, he's a fictional king one with no real authority, one with no real ability to affect our lives, a king that really has nothing to do with us. Listen, if Jesus really is the king that we, in our carols, proclaim him to be, our question surely is, how is that relevant? How will this truth nourish me and feed me Is he a king that I can relate to? And I think that applies to the over-30s as well as the under-30s, being one of them. Well, in this series, we're going to look exclusively at the Gospel of Matthew. And there's a further problem here, because Matthew begins his Gospel in a really odd way that might seem very unrelatable, and not nourishing at all. I, I suppose um, anyone writing a book has to make sure that the first line is interesting, don't they? So if it doesn't grab you in the first line or two, you, you're not going to get sucked into the story. There was a guy apparently called Edward Bulwer Lytton. That's a hyphenated surname. Must have been quite posh. And he wrote a novel in 1830 that begins with this sentence. It was a dark and stormy night. The rain fell in torrents, except at occasional intervals, when it was checked by a violent gust of wind which swept up the streets. For it is in London that our scene lies, rattling along the housetops and fiercely agitating the scanty flame of the lamps that struggled against the darkness. Apparently that first line is considered to be so bad that literary experts have started a global competition called the annual Edward Bulwer-Lytton competition. And every year 
the idea is that they find the worst opening lines to new novels and give them a prize. So if you're a novel writer, you could win the, the Bulwer Lytton Prize for the, first, the worst opening first line of a novel. What is the best way to write the first line of a book? Here's another one. Shall we play Guess the Book? Let's play Guess the Book. I, some of you might get this. The two men appeared out of nowhere, a few yards apart in the narrow, moonlit lane. I mean, you, straight away you grabbed your heart, aren't you? Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallow. You were going to say that, weren't you? This one's an easy one. In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. What a great first line that is. Simple anticipation. I mean, what's a hobbit? A hole in the ground? What? Straight away you're kind of into the story. Matthew seems not to know anything about writing books because he begins his gospel with a genealogy. A what? <laughs> a list of names. Basically, a family tree. Is Matthew just some kind of Bible doofus who doesn't know the rules of literary engagement? It doesn't look like the best of starts. In fact, it would be very easy to say, let's just skip this bit and go straight down to verse 18, where the real story starts. However, I want to try, I have a little surprise for you this afternoon. I want to show you how what looks like possibly one of the most boring sections of the Bible is actually one of the most exciting. That's a tall order, isn't it? It might seem boring, but Matthew, in fact, is writing to make the birth of Jesus both relatable and nourishing in this very section. Well, we probably should read it, shouldn't we? Are you ready? So we, we, we don't normally read genealogies in church, but let's read and if you've got one of the Red Church Bibles, it would be great for you to keep your finger on your page because we're going to jump around in this section. But let, let's hear uh, God's word here. Matthew writes, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerar, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. 
Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. 17 verses. Lots of big names there, isn't there? What a way to start a book. Does it draw you in? It's hardly like in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, is it? In this section, Matthew is trying to tell us three things. And I'll tell you what they are at the beginning, and then we'll go through them one by one, and then we'll be done. Matthew's trying to tell us that the birth of Jesus is the dramatic fulfillment of every good promise that God has ever made. Secondly, that it is the, the birth of Jesus is the mark of a completely new start. And thirdly, that the birth of Jesus is part of a story that we ourselves are all participating in. This story is our story. So let's dive into those three ideas as we think about the promised king, his credentials. First of all, the birth of Jesus... Matthew is trying to show us is the fulfilment of every single good promise that God has made to us. When people think of religious leaders, I think we're often thinking of people who started religions and have, and have somehow, by doing that, shaped the world. So we might think of men like Buddha, Confucius. Mohammed and many other individuals. I wonder this afternoon if that's how you might think about Jesus. Do you think of Jesus as simply one among an elite group of enlightened human beings who basically have invented religions? I think Matthew's perspective is very different. Jesus, according to Matthew, is not an inventor. He is not an innovator who started something new. He's actually 
the fulfillment. He is the solution. He is the answer. Jesus, according to Matthew, is in fact the end of the story. Everything that God has promised in the past culminates in history in him. He isn't inventing a new religion. He is the fulfillment of everything that God has promised. Now, you you may know that Matthew is a Jewish man. He was actually a disciple of Jesus. And he will have been completely steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. And one of the significant things about Judaism is the sense of waiting within Judaism. All of the Old Testament part of the Bible, all of the Bible before Christ, written by Jewish leaders, all of it seems to be promising something. In fact, promising a someone who would one day come. Matthew writes his gospel to present Jesus as the fulfillment of all of those promises. He himself is the promised king. The fulfillment of thousands of years of history. I think the existence of a genealogy here is intended to give us the credentials of Jesus in two ways. First of all, we should notice, without just glossing over it, that Jesus Christ is actually a real historical person. That's important to say that. He had real ancestors. He has a family tree. Going way back, he is not a mythical figure that someone made up sometime. He had a family tree. But the point of this genealogy, as well as showing that Jesus is a real person, Jews in the past were obsessive about genealogies. And one of the reasons for that is that this genealogy is intended to establish the credentials of Jesus. We might see it a little bit like we might put together a modern CV. I suppose in the ancient world, if you were an important person, you you have to be able to prove your heritage, your pedigree, your rights as a person. You might have to prove your legal claim to land or to a crown by producing an accurate family tree. And certainly, the Jewish uh, people have been very obsessive about this kind of genealogy. The very first verse tells us something of what Matthew intends. Matthew says there, this is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The line of Jesus goes right back to both Abraham and David. These men are both very crucial figures in history. And the reason that they're significant is because God made some incredible promises to both of them. So I want to just explore with you. What did God say first of all to Abraham? Here Jesus is described here by Matthew as the son of Abraham. Abraham was initially a pagan man. He wasn't a believer in God at all. 
But God, he encountered God and God called him to leave his own country and travel to what would later become the promised land of Israel. In the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, God makes an amazing promise to this pagan man. He comes to Abraham, he singles him out, he chooses Abraham, and he says this to him. The Lord, the Lord, this is what it says in Genesis 12, 1-3. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. I mean, that, and Abraham's like, I'll get my coat. I, I'll get my coat. Where, where we, he doesn't know where they're going. God, what a thing for God to say to a pagan man who's not even a believer up until this point. God comes to him. This is not Abraham even seeking God. God comes to Abraham and says, every person on the planet one day is going to be blessed through you, mate. Wow! I'll get me cold. Where are we going? It's an absolutely staggering promise. Now, Abraham's descendants have spent thousands of years waiting to see how that might play out. How would Abraham's descendants bless the whole world? Well, what, one of the points of this is that if any person ever stands up and says, Hey guys, I'm the Messiah. One of the first questions to ask them is, Are you related to Abraham? Because God promised that he would bless the whole world through Abraham. If you're not related to him, you've got to be an imposter. That's like test number one. So what Matthew's telling us here is that Jesus' line goes all the way back to Abraham. Jesus is a son of Abraham. When Matthew says that Jesus is a son of Abraham, he's trying to tell us that Jesus is the fulfilment of that globally significant promise. Jesus is the one with a capital O. He is the Christ. He's the solution. He's the fulfillment of what God said 2,000 odd years before to Abraham. This is the moment. But there's more. Matthew also says that Jesus is a son of David. David was the greatest king that Israel ever had King David God made another amazing promise to David different to the promise he made to Abraham let me read to you what God said to David in the Old Testament the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, 
I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. What? Can you imagine God saying that to you? You're the king and God says to you, when you're dead, your own flesh and blood, I'm going to establish your son's kingdom forever. I mean, that's a legacy, isn't it? What a promise. God promised King David that one of his own descendants would establish a kingdom that would last forever. Now, the Jewish people have been waiting. Was it Solomon? David's son Solomon. Well, he, he lived for a few years. He did some good things and some not so good things. And then he died. And then he had a son and it kind of went on. By the time that Christ is born, the monarchy doesn't even exist. God had promised King David that one of his descendants would establish an everlasting throne. And by this point, the monarchy doesn't even exist. What is Matthew telling us? He's showing us with this genealogy that Jesus is not just a direct descendant of Abraham, but he's also a direct descendant of King David. So again, if someone stands up and says, I'm the Messiah, the second test is, show us your credentials, mate. Are you related to King David? Because God promised him that it would be one of his descendants. Here Matthew has shown us both Matthew is telling us that Jesus, even though the monarchy doesn't exist, is actually in the royal line. He is a son of Abraham, which means he's the fulfillment of a promise to make global blessing. He's the son of David, which is the promise that he will be the everlasting king. who will establish a kingdom that will never die. Many kings and kingdoms rise and fall, but this birth is the fulfillment of all of those promises that have gone before. When you put those two ideas together, what Matthew is telling us is that God has promised that the whole world will be blessed through this royal king. So what looks like the lamest beginning to a book that was ever written is actually one of the most mind-blowing and exciting things you could possibly ever hear, isn't it? Secondly, that's point one. Secondly, completely new start. There's something else interesting in Matthew's mind here when Matthew wrote his gospel he, he wrote it in, in, in Greek 
That was, that was the common language. And um, the first two words of Matthew's Gospel in the Greek are these two words. Biblos, Genesis. That, that, if you read Matthew's Gospel when it was first written and you could read Greek, that's the first two words. Biblos, Genesis. Biblos means book or, or story. And Genesis, as you might know, it's the first book in the Bible, Genesis, isn't it? The word Genesis means beginning or origin. So the first two words of Matthew literally mean this is the story of the beginning. I'm not sure why the, the NRV, I don't, I don't know, it translates it, a record of the genealogy. It's kind of trying to convey the sense. What's interesting is Matthew uses the word Genesis again in verse 18. Perhaps you could have a little guess which word means origin. Verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. That word birth is the word Genesis. And what is even more interesting is that that exact same phrase is used in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but by Matthew's time, there were a number of versions of the Old Testament in Greek so that people who read Greek could read them, just like we read the Bible in English. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the exact same words, Biblos, Genesis, appear in the book of Genesis, in our English Bibles, Genesis 2 verse 4 reads this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Literally, Genesis says, this is the story of the beginning. It is almost like Matthew deliberately begins his gospel with these two words so that readers will go... Hang on a minute. Biblos Genesis. I've heard that phrase before. Where have I heard that phrase before? Biblos Genesis. That comes at the beginning of Genesis, doesn't it? Maybe you would even flick through and go back to Genesis 2 for, hang on a minute. So in fact, what seems to us like a boring genealogy is in fact, the first two words are, in, are designed by Matthew to go, Deja vu. I've heard this before. The story of the beginning. What Matthew is showing us is that the Bible, in essence, is giving us two different accounts of beginnings using the exact same phrase. Matthew's telling us that the story of the world is the story of two origins, two beginnings. The first account of beginnings, where the first Biblos Genesis appears in Genesis 2 verse 4, is really the original creation which was excellent and good and beautiful. But the Bible also tells us that after a very short time, evil polluted that amazing good world. Our first parents rebelled against their glorious maker. 
and misery and death and corruption came in to God's good world to spoil what God had begun in that story of first beginnings. Let me illustrate with some modern technology. We, we have a TV at home, believe it or not. And um, nowadays, when you're watching TV and something happens that you really enjoyed, you can press a button on the remote control and you can actually pause the TV and rewind and watch again what you just saw. It's like, oh, you invented that. So when Wigan scored that goal in the FA Cup, no, we won't go there. You can rewind and watch the thing again. Do you sometimes wonder what it would be like if you had a massive like remote control that you could point at the world and pause it and then rewind it all the way back to the beginning and start again. What Matthew is doing here is he is del- he's making a deliberate allusion to that first beginning by using the same phrase here with Jesus. What he's really saying is that the birth of Jesus represents a completely new start. The birth of Jesus is, is God wiping the slate clean. He has come to make things that were broken new again. He has come to give the world a fresh start. The first beginning was creation, which is broken. And now Jesus comes to begin a kind of new creation, a recreation. This means that God cares, doesn't it? That the world is broken and messed up. This means that God knows the problems and the suffering that go on in this often miserable world and that he has promised a solution and his answer is not a system or an idea but a living person. The birth of Jesus is a fresh start. He comes to put the broken pieces back together. I I think this is one of the reasons why in the Bible we read that Jesus performed miracles. Miracles don't seem to happen all the time. They don't even happen through all of biblical history. But it's almost as if when Jesus comes... He's in a sense given a glimpse of his power and ability to put things that were broken back together again. It's almost as if Jesus said, it was never meant to be like this. It's almost like Jesus opens the curtains and says, this is what it's going to be like in the end. It was the sign of a new start having begun. Many Jews thought that the Messiah was going to come and smash the Romans. But this is a way bigger goal than that, isn't it? 
I mean, God has got the Romans in mind, but so much more than just the Roman occupation of Israel. Jesus is a king, and his mission is ultimately to fix the world, not just Israel. And maybe this is a good place just to pause for a moment and highlight that this surely is intensely relevant and personal to each and every one of us, isn't it? Do you sometimes wish that you could point that remote at your own life? Go back to the beginning. Mistakes are made. Regrets that can plague us. Things that spiral out of control that we never meant. Sometimes do we not wish that we could go back to the beginning and start all over again? Somewhere else in the Bible, another writer says this. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. It goes on to say, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting men's sins against them. If if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The birth of Jesus Christ means that you and I can have a fresh start. Jesus is able to remake, to restore, to refresh, to renew, to rewind, to wipe the slate clean. There was a beginning once. This is a completely new beginning. So Matthew is telling us some of the most exciting things you could possibly hope to hear. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And he also brings with him the opportunity of recreation, a fresh start. Thirdly, and lastly, we're all included in this story. Family trees can be very interesting. Um, I tried to look at my own family tree uh, once, and my mum's side isn't too clear, but on my dad's side, I got back to like the early 1800s. So no, it's not like loads of it, but my, my own family on my dad's side seemed to have come from North Wales near Wrexham and it seems looking at records that the family was very poor many of the men worked long hours in coal mines which is quite ironic given that I came to Rotherham to work at a coal mine when I was 18 my great 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 granddad would have been very proud and pleased of that or maybe he wouldn't I don't know there's a TV series called who do you think you are? In which famous celebrities investigate their ancestors and sometimes they find out that their family tree has some noble person or even a royalty in there and then other times they find that there's some notorious criminal lurking in the closet somewhere in their family tree. The family tree of Jesus here 
is no different. This list here includes kings, famous people, influential people, but it is also very unusual because it includes people that you wouldn't normally see in a Jewish genealogy. For one thing, there are four women mentioned, five if you include Mary, but four in the actual family tree. And in terms of the legalities of a genealogy and establishing someone's credentials, quite a few of these people had a very dodgy past, let's say. This is a family, the family of Jesus, that has some black sheep in it. There are people here in this list who are quite murky, let's say. Uh, Martin Luther summarised this passage in a sermon 500 years ago. And I, I can't really better Martin Luther. Here's a quote from Martin Luther on this passage. Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. Only Martin Luther could say that. What a, what a great quote that is. This is a family that includes broken, failing people. Let me show you verse 3. There's a lady there called Tamar. Matthew, normally women wouldn't be mentioned in the family tree, but look at what Matthew says. Abraham the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, obviously important, the twelve tribes of Israel. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. You'll find that story in Genesis chapter 38. You don't need to turn to it. Tamar was married to Judah's son, who died. And one of the legalities, if, if a wife was married and the man died, one of the brothers would then marry to continue the family line. So Judah gave Tamar his second son. He wasn't very pleased with that. And he refused to fulfill his obligation, as it would have been then. And he died too. Judah had three sons, and he promised the youngest to Tamar. But he wasn't old enough. So he said to Tamar, a little gentleman's agreement, when he grows up, you can have him, and we'll carry on the family line through him. He either forgot or he changed his mind. And Tamar, being a, I don't know, she sounds like a reasonably sharp cookie to me. She's very offended by the fact that you promised me your youngest son and you've done me over. So she effectively tricks Judah, the dad, by pretending to be a prostitute and tricks Judah into making her pregnant. She makes sure that she's got some evidence because she asks him to give her some pledge. And Judah's like ready to kill the person who's, who, who's done this until he gets the pledge back when he realises, whoops, caught red-handed. So Judah is the father of his daughter-in-law's children. The result of that illicit union was twins, Perez and Zerah. Very interesting as well, how they're born. It's all very messy. This is the line of Christ. 
These are Jesus' ancestors. This is Jesus' family. What about Rahab? A little bit further down in verse 5, we read about Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. In the book of Joshua, chapter 2, we read that Rahab was the town prostitute in Jericho. And yet when the Israelites were spying out the promised land, they came to Rahab's house and she hid them on the roof in return for them protecting her. And you can read the story in Joshua chapter 2. What she says about her fear of God in that chapter is incredible. So she's a foreign woman who's not a Jew and more than that, a prostitute. And here she is, included in the line of Christ. Just a line below that, we come across Ruth. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. We're just going through the book of Judges at the moment. Ruth lived in the time of the Judges. And during a famine, a man and his wife, Elimelech and Naomi, they left with their two sons and went to Moab. The husband died. Her two boys married Moabites women. And then the two boys died, leaving Naomi with two foreign daughters-in-law. Ruth was one of them. But she too came to believe in the Lord God and begged Naomi to let her return with her to Israel. She falls in love with a man called Boaz and they too here appear in the line of King David and ultimately King Jesus. There's a lovely verse in the book of Ruth where Boaz, her husband-to-be, says to her, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What a beautiful picture that is for Ruth, a foreign lady coming under the wings of the Lord God Almighty for refuge. Beautiful. And then there's another lady in the next verse who's not mentioned by name. Verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. I think the reason it does that is because Uriah was a foreigner. And I think it's making a point here that like Ruth, Bathsheba was not a Jew, it seems. She's famous because King David took her as his wife when she was already married to Uriah. And David then sends the husband Uriah to the front line in the battle in the hope that he'd be killed which he was so that he could have Uriah's wife so she and David were both adulterers so even in these four stories there are illegitimate children dysfunctional relationships women who would otherwise have been treated as aliens being important parts of the ancestry of Christ, flawed unions that God has chosen to bless in the most amazing ways. And all of this, the family of Jesus, the promised king born into a family that is warped and dysfunctional. 
He's not ashamed to come into this world and into this particular family to bring his transforming, life-giving power. Jesus is not recoiling in horror, too unwilling to get his hands dirty. He comes to engage and to enter our problems, our pain, our sins, our shame. If Jesus was glad to have ancestors like this, what must he have been like after he was born and grew up? No wonder they called him the friend of sinners. His family's full of them. And the fact that these women are included here very unusually I think Matthew is making the point that people matter. Broken people who make mistakes matter. One writer I came across said this, the presence of these four women in the lineage of the king emphasises a genealogy of grace. I love that. A genealogy of grace. Maybe the inclusion of these four women makes us ask the question, when actually were the good old days? Because these four women seem to mark various points in Israel's history and show us that there never really were good old days. Surely the twelve tribes of Israel, when those first twelve sons were born, that must have been a great time to live, mustn't it? Jacob and his twelve sons? Well, no. They were basically a dysfunctional and messed up family with all sorts of incestuous stuff going on. Well, what about the exodus and the entry into the promised land? That was surely a triumphant, glorious time. Maybe that was a good old days. Actually, no, the people sinned so badly that God made them wait in the desert for 40 years till most of the rebellious ones were dead. And when the time finally came, the spies who explored Canaan had no faith and a prostitute who lived in Jericho had more faith than them. Maybe once they settled down in the land and got things sorted, maybe then things have proved no. Well, we've been going through the book of Judges, <laughs> one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. And yet, in the middle of that period of idolatry and immorality, a foreign woman called Ruth gives her heart to the Lord God Almighty and finds refuge under the shadow of his wings. Even in the middle of darkness. Maybe the monarchy, maybe that was the time when it all started to pick up a bit. King David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. But even he was flawed, committed adultery, an indirectly murder. To a Jewish reader, knowing this Old Testament history, as you're reading these names, it almost feels like there's a colourful film going on at the same time, running alongside the words. This is one of the most exciting genealogies you could possibly read. It would make a great film. From Abraham to David, via the Exodus, through to the abject failure of a nation that is humiliated and carried off into exile and then later restored. 
William Barclay was a Bible commentator in the 1800s and he wrote in his genealogy Matthew shows us that the royalty of kingship gained the tragedy of freedom lost the glory of liberty restored and that in the mercy of God is the story of mankind and of each individual person for many people in our modern culture family is the most important thing we know we're not perfect and there are often things wrong but the idea that we can find love and acceptance and help and security is a deeply appealing one but look at this family Christ is born into animal feeding troughs and into a dysfunctional family with all of its messed up history. This is the same Jesus who was constantly looking out for outcasts, people filled with shame, disgrace. He came to save sinners, not to condemn them. Let me close with an illustration. American pastor Matt Chandler tells the story of how he really wanted one of his friends to come to faith in Christ. And so he took this girl with a group of friends to a Christian concert, hoping that that night she would hear the gospel and trust Jesus for salvation that night but the whole evening was what he later called a train wreck that's a kind of idiom for it didn't really go that well the preacher was really aiming at sexual sins And he gave loads of statistics in his talk about sexually transmitted diseases. But his main illustration was to show everyone a freshly cut red rose. And he had it on the stage. And he handed it up. He made a big deal of smelling it and stroking the lovely smooth petals and showing it off to the people who were there. And then he passed it around the audience And at the end of his talk, he asked for the rose back. And you can imagine what it looked like. All the petals had fallen off. It looked a mess. It was nothing like the fresh rose that he'd been glorying in on the stage. And his aim in his talk was to show how people can become dirty and broken. And the point of his message was, don't be a broken rose. The girl went home, but a few weeks later, her mum called Matt Chandler to say that she'd been in an accident. And he went to the hospital to visit this friend. And during the course of the conversation, she just blurted out, Matt, do you think that I'm a dirty rose? You know, I wonder whether the whole point 
of this genealogy is Matthew telling us that Jesus wants the rose. Wherever you've been, whatever you have done, and we're talking male or female here, young or old, what you need is what all of us need. A king like Jesus who loves his broken family. The Tamars, the Rahabs, the Ruths and the Bathshebas, the Abrahams, the Judas, the Davids. We said at the start that under 30s crave something that they can relate to that will nourish them. I think Matthew here is excited to present Jesus in exactly that light. What looks like a boring list of names is actually his way of showing us that Jesus is the culmination of every good promise that God has ever made. He is the one who gives us the opportunity to make a completely new start and he's not ashamed of failures, broken people like us. Listen up, we're done. I want to encourage you this afternoon to respond to Jesus. Can I ask you, all of you, are you part of this story? You can be. Even starting today, come and see who Jesus really is. These are his credentials. See what he's achieved for you through his life and death and resurrection. He is the promised one, the new start, the friend of failures. Will you come like those women of old and find your safe place? under the wings of the Lord God Almighty. You can relate to him and let him nourish and feed you with his love and grace. And for those of you who already love Jesus, isn't he amazing? Will you join me in worshipping him this Christmas season? Cherish him love him treasure him enjoy him there is no one no one anywhere who even comes close to being like 